This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 15th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Young people, for the most part, don't think Social Security will be around for them, but recent data shows that too many young people do believe that the system will not only be around, but will provide for the bulk of their retirement. Mike Riggs, a reporter at Reason, says liberty-minded young people should especially walk the walk on financial independence. According to Gallup, the polling company, 25% of young adults anticipate paying for retirement with their Social Security benefits. Uh, This is the highest number of young people who have believed that Social Security will be a primary source of income in retirement since Gallup began collecting data on this question. And so, and historically, we've understood that even the Social Security Administration itself has argued, well, what Social Security was a is a part, a, a small part of your retirement, your own savings, and whatever uh, retirement you receive from your company is uh, going to be your pr- the primary sources of your retirement. Yeah, it's we've always kind of talked about it as a supplement. I mean, even if you go back several decades um, to the introduction of Social Security, it's, it's this supplement for elderly people who are living with their families. Um, there are lots of Americans who try to use Social Security benefits uh, as a way to pay most of their bills and sustain the bulk of their lifestyle who live alone, and it's, it doesn't work for them. It doesn't work very well at all. I mean, it's less than $2,000 a month at the high end, and so if you have a mortgage uh, or you owe money on a car, or you have any other sort of personal debt or household debt, Social Security is is not a way to live right. at so, all. So you, your theory is that it's just that we don't really talk about it anymore. Yeah. So when I went back, when I saw Gallup's numbers, which came out at the end of last month, I was sort of horrified by this because I'm, I'm getting ready to turn 32. Uh, the debate over privatizing Social Security started at the beginning of Bush's second term. And I knew I, I was in uh, starting college in Bush's, the beginning of Bush's second term. And I just remember thinking immediately like, okay, if they're talking about privatizing this, um, if we're talking about going to personal retirement accounts, if we're talking about insolvency, uh, there's no way that this situation will be better 40 years down the road. And in tracking with the, the Gallup data here, when President Bush was making this case, not very well, arguably, when he was making this case, the the fraction of that age cohort, 18 to 29, it declined. That yeah. is, the people who thought Social Security was going to form a primary source of retirement income, that hit a low. Pretty much across the board, except for people who were already drawing retirement benefits, across the board, uh, when Bush was touring on the idea of, of uh, personal savings accounts in lieu of Social Security benefits, everybody uh, from, from 18 up to 50s, sort of their confidence in Social Security as a primary source of income fell in, in Gallup's measurement. And so if you look back, Gallup has been polling on this question since about 2001. If you look back at their polling data, the lowest level of confidence is during Bush's tour for private savings accounts. And I'm not sure that's because uh, you know, it could be that that Bush talking about it with such certainty and, and the idea that it needed to happen made people just think, okay, either somebody's going to take this away or it's not going to be there for me. Um, 
But I think the latter case is like definitely true. Even the most optimistic projections for Social Security don't have it being a way to sustain your lifestyle. But we should be clear that this is still a small fraction of people uh, in all these age cohorts. It's below 50 percent who believe that Social Security will be a primary source of retirement income. And among young, the youngest people, that idea is uh, – very, very low relative to the other age cohorts. But the fact that it's on the upswing, uh, you say, you argue, is troubling in itself. I think it's pretty nerve-wracking. I also think I'm, I'm definitely heartened that my age group is the most skeptical of, of Social Security. I think that means we've learned something. Um, at the same time, it's still a lot of people. We have over 300 million people in the United States. And if even if it's just uh, in in on net, only forty percent of them are expecting to use social security benefits as a way to pay for their life in retirement. That's so many people. That's so many people. And then there's other data that's also pretty troubling, which is that we're not saving enough privately or independently of social security benefits. Uh, millennials are not taking near enough advantage of things like Roth IRAs or four hundred one ks or employee matches and or employer matches. Um, and I know when I talk to – I have some friends when I talk to you about this stuff, their eyes kind of glaze over. They're like, I don't care. I don't care. And I'm like, well, do you ever care about not having to clock in for a nine-to-five job? Because that's – these are what we're essentially talking about here is reaching a point where if you don't want to work 40 hours a week, you don't have to. So uh, you and I have discussed offline many, many times the the scourge of – our ability to consume and the range of options that we have to consume in the, the here and now and how relatively easy it is to put off those uh, sometimes difficult, very hard-nosed decisions about our own personal finances and uh, trying to secure our futures on our own. We have. Um, it's not fun. And this is, I think, um, Mel, Mel Magazine, which is an online magazine out of California, ran a piece recently about millennials who uh, had committed themselves to saving and putting aside and paying off debt as quickly as possible and then gave up on it. So this whole piece is about people who tried this grand experiment of, I'm going to live differently, uh, to quote Dave Ramsey. I'm going to live like no one else so that I can live like no one else, right, which is the idea that you – Deprive yourself of things you want in the moment so that you can be more judicious and more responsible. And then later in life, you can live more luxuriously because you'll be financially secure. And Mel did this piece on people who had given up on it after trying for several years. And I, I remember reading that piece and thinking, this is such a hard thing to sell people on. It's such a hard thing because it's, it's being on social media – it's having Instagram and Facebook and seeing all these people who seem to have everything while you're skimping on meals out or you're buying a $1,500 used car instead of leasing a $25,000 car. And it is so incredibly unsexy to people. And I worry that what's happening and, and kind of has always been happening is that the people who seem to be have it all um, have built their entire lives out of cards that could collapse at any minute. So uh, – and even more broadly, I think the underlying argument here is that there's nothing the government can do to protect you from your own choices. 
Yeah. No, that's true. The government cannot protect you from the choice to rely completely on Social Security. The government cannot protect you from uh, borrowing too much money. Um, there is absolutely no stopgap. Um, and I, you know, the other thing I looked at the polling data, I didn't want to, I didn't write about this in my poster reason because I, I don't have any evidence that this is true. But I worry if we're, that we're just sort of moving in the direction of saying, um, you know, if, if you came into the, the job market after the housing crash in 2008, if you are, if we're just sort of more receptive to massive wealth redistribution, um, which, you know, whether or not you think that's good or bad, whether or not you're a capitalist or a socialist, we know that the outcomes of those schemes are decreased quality of life for almost everybody except the very, 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 very poor. And I don't think that the number of people who are saying like, maybe this wouldn't be so bad. You know, we have an unprecedented number of people living at home with their parents into their mid-20s. Um, if, you're, if you're a young millennial who's working but you don't feel like you're making enough or you don't have enough to live this life you want, you may think about wealth redistribution saying maybe it's not so bad. Except you would then find out if, that, if one of those schemes ever came into being, just how wealthy you had been until we tried to equalize incomes and standard of livings across a country of 300 million people. My concern is uh, right now the way the, the, the – just the concept of wealth redistribution uh, seems to be fairly popular. Uh, the, the new angle on that is a guaranteed basic income or a universal basic income that the people who are judicious, the people who are willing to delay gratification and engage in that type of saving, it, it, it's a psychological punishment for them to see these discussions go on and know that, well, uh, maybe all this saving is pointless. Maybe trying to secure my own future is pointless. I, I think there's some truth to that. I'm, I'm watching uh, the debate over healthcare with a lot of fascination because We've gone from, from it's it, you know maybe ten years ago the the more likely a market based healthcare system seemed like an an actual viable alternative to the weird Frankenstein that we've had for decades now, and I don't I'm not sure I feel like that's true anymore. And now seems like uh, in terms of 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 alternatives to the status quo that single payer has the most momentum that it's ever had before. Um, and again, I like I want people who need health care to have health care. And I just wonder, we're a great place to live because of how industrious we are. And we're a great place to live because it's ingrained in our in our national culture that if you can afford to do without, you should. And you should work. And it and things should be a little bit hard. And we've also decided that they shouldn't be impossible, which is why we have a safety net. And I think it's good that we have a safety net. But now we're talking about just putting a safety net under the entire country from like corner to corner. And it does punish savers. And it does punish people who say, I want this bad enough that I'm going to deprive myself and I'm going to work kind of hard. And I've, you know, I have not always been a person who is willing to do that. And once I discovered that, it, it was very empowering and kind of amazing. And I am anxious about the idea of living in a country in which that skill set is not useful. Or valued. 
Or valued, yeah, right? Because that's the other thing. Um, my grandparents thought saving was wonderful, and my great-grandparents lived through the Depression, and I knew my great-grandmother. She died when I was in middle school. And the, these things were fundamental to their worldview, you know, thrift, waste not, want not. Um, so the, the argument then to pitch to this primarily libertarian audience is that if, if uh, or what I would suspect is um, being financially independent, I suspect would make you less tolerant of these pitches for free stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think the other argument to make is that we should we should walk the walk. If this is a thing that you believe in, if you believe in industriousness and thriftiness, and and uh, you know not if, if you think the government should not spend money it doesn't have or print money to um, cover spending it shouldn't have done, uh, that we should sort of we should adopt, you know, sort of reverse engineer these into our own lives. Because I do, I do think that we, um, and you and I, again, in terms of offline talking, have talked about the sort of freedom that you get from embracing that kind of responsibility and stoicness and industriousness and thriftiness, which is that when the world starts to be a place where you're like, I don't like, I don't like my geographical location. I don't like my job. I don't like this community. Um, that you, if you have done all these things, if you have been responsible, if you have been thrifty, uh, you can move, you can make choices. Um, and so, yeah, for a libertarian audience, I mean, like, if you if you think it's bad that the government prints money to cover spending, um, are you printing money in your own life? Like, that's what credit cards are. That's what leases for cars are. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to point fingers at anyone because, again, it took me way too long to learn these things. Um, but we should be walking the walk for sure. Mike Riggs is a reporter at Reason. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.